Well, now we'll turn to God's Word. We've been uh, in the book of Ezekiel, and um, we've been going through there a couple of chapters each week in a series that I'm calling something like, you know, Can These Dry Bones Live? It's a really remarkable um, book in our Bibles, not one that's often talked about, and I think for that reason it's good to spend a little time here, and we'll, we'll do this for, for some time. But this morning we're going to be uh, in Ezekiel 10 and 11, and uh, Megan's going to come up and read chapter 10, and then I'm going to take a stab at chapter 11. So this is the Word of God. All right, let's hunker down. <laughs> All right. Morning, by the way. Okay. Uh, morning. <laughs> Chapter 10. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house, when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hand of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went in, they went in, in sorry, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, and their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels, and everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Shabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Shabar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. 
Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces who appearance, whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's continue in the chapter 11. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were twenty-five men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Palatia, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of men, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and He said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat. And this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pilatia, the son of Benaiah, died. And then I fell down on my face and I cried out with a loud voice and I said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I am removed, or though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. And then the cherubim lifted up their wings and with the wheels beside them and the glory of God of Israel was over them, of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And then the vision that I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. The grass withers and the flower fades. That the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. There's a lot to unpack here, and and uh, could take three or four weeks just to talk about these couple of chapters. We won't be doing that, and I'm going to do my best to kind of just hit hit some of the highlights this morning. So let's pray one more time. I feel the God nudging me to pray. Let's pray, Lord. We come to your word. We ask that you would help us now. There's so much here. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of stuff that is hard, maybe even a bit scary. God, we are frail people, fragile people. We come before a holy God. and We need your help, just like Ezekiel, to stand. We pray as we stand before your word and we open it up that you would grant us strength. And grant us grace to understand, but also to go forth and to live out what is spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was telling someone just recently that our family is trying to incorporate uh, more carrot juice into our diet. Anyone out there a drinker of carrot juice? Any of you folks? Nope, crickets. (laughs) There's one in the back, okay. Great. Well, carrot juice is kind of like a superfood. It's uh, really, really good for you. But recently, one of our girls was beginning to have, you know, a little bit of, of the carrot juice every morning and getting to where she really liked the carrot juice, which is quite remarkable. Made her feel good, and I think it gave her some energy. Well, one morning, she was at school and began to not feel so good. And went to the office and then, of course, began to get really sick to her stomach. At first, when we got the call from the school, we thought maybe she was sick with some kind of a stomach bug or, you know, virus of some kind. But after some thought and as more evidence came forth, we, uh, we thought that, uh, this was probably the carrot juice. No one else in our family was having any stomach issues and, Once we went and picked her up, not long after that, she began to feel a lot better. So it passed really quickly. But that's our theory anyway, was the carrot juice. Carrot juice was the culprit. So sometimes, even too much of a good thing can make you sick, right? Sometimes too much of a good thing can make you sick. And spiritually, in a way, this is true also. We are so quick as people, to take a good gift of God, something good, something gracious, something that is a gift, something that was given to bless us and help us, 
and we make it ultimate. We turn it into an ultimate thing. A mini-God of sorts. And then it backfires and makes us sick. In Ezekiel's day, the temple in Jerusalem became this good thing that the people of God at that time had made ultimate. The inhabitants of Jerusalem had made it an ultimate thing. It became like a charm or a rabbit's foot of sorts. And the people thought that because they had the temple, Jerusalem was safe and they were safe. They completely forgot that what made the temple so special was the God who dwelt there. He was the true gift. And the temple was merely the place to encounter Him. They had exchanged the glory of the Creator and began to worship and serve the creation, a gift. The thing that was the copy, the picture, the shadow captured their hearts and they turned from the original, the real McCoy, and worshipped the copy. And now, after four centuries of dwelling with His people in the temple in Jerusalem, God was going to depart and leave. He was going to allow them to see what the temple alone, the temple itself, could do for them without His presence there. Of course, we will see that like that carrot juice, too much of a good thing became a bad thing and it was going to make them very sick. Even good things can be idols. In fact, most of the things in life that trip us up, if we're really honest and we look inside and examine ourselves, most of the things in life that trip us up can, if we allow them to, lead us into darkness. Right? Those things often are good things, not bad things. They're things that we distort and we make ultimate. But we ruin them by worshiping them and making them ultimate. We make them into little mini-gods and they fail us. And then we have a big mess on our hands, don't we? So today the Lord is going to show us this fact through this vision that He gives to Ezekiel. We're going to see three things about God's good gifts. Or I hope we'll see three things about God's good gifts. And the first one is this. God's good gifts point us to Him. They point us to Him. And that is in fact why He gives them to us. That they might lead us to Him. Well, if you've been tracking with us up to this point, so very quickly we'll do a refresher. If you've been tracking with us up to this point, it's okay if you haven't been. We're going to do our best to, to preach these stories in a way that you don't need to know all the background and every detail. They don't hang together, so to speak. But if you have been tracking with us, uh, as you listen to chapter 10 read, you're probably thinking to yourself, this all sounds really familiar. And that's right. It is really uh, familiar. We're hearing something again. This vision that we're given there in chapter 10 is very, very much like the one that Ezekiel was given back in chapter 1. So Ezekiel's seeing some things here in a visionary experience that he's already seen. And in fact, he's going to say that himself at the end of this chapter in verse 22. You probably heard uh, Megan say there a couple of times right at the end of, of, of uh, chapter 10. Uh, he said, um, as 
And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces who appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. We've heard that expression before, the Chabar Canal. This was a place where Ezekiel was at the start of the book when the first vision came to him. So he's saying, this looks very similar to what I saw not too uh, long ago. So by way of refresher for us, before we get too deep into what's going on here, um, Ezekiel was in line to be a priest in Jerusalem. This would have been a very wonderful and noble thing, a wonderful calling. But that calling was cut short when he and thousands of his kinsmen were taken into exile uh, by the Babylonians. Okay, And I'm going to invite Miss Felicia, as she feels convenient, if she can, to pull up the little map that we look at pretty much every week. Um, we've been going through Ezekiel. Uh, that red little flag there kind of roughly approximates where we believe Ezekiel would have been uh, when he was uh, seeing these uh, visions of God that he's describing here for us. At the start of our book, Ezekiel finds himself in what is modern-day Iraq, living in and among the Babylonians in a place we guess right around ancient Nippur, which is right in that area where that little red flag is there, about 100 miles south of Baghdad. Five years after arriving in Babylon, again, taken against his will, he doesn't want to be there, right? This was something that happened uh, to him and, and to many thousands of other uh, Israelites and Jews. Um, they're taken away. And five years after being in Babylon, he has this vision. He's there by the Chabar Canal. And God appears to him. And it is an amazing vision. It's, it's perhaps the most detailed vision in all the Old Testament that we see uh, a prophet having of God. And multiple times Ezekiel is going to talk about this vision and unpack it. And he's shocked. Why is Ezekiel shocked? Because he's in Babylon. He's seeing the Lord on his throne in Babylon. Not in Jerusalem. Not where we'd expect God to make an appearance or show up, but in Babylon. There he is. And God proceeds to give Ezekiel a number of messages for his people in Babylon. He's not shown up just to, you know, give Ezekiel a good time, right? Though that perhaps is part of it. But he has a call, a purpose, a vision um, for Ezekiel, a message he wants Ezekiel to take to the people. Even some of these messages, as we've talked about, Ezekiel was not allowed to speak those messages. He had to basically do something like charades or street theater um, to, to try and convey the message. And here in chapter 10, Ezekiel is in the middle of one of these visionary experiences of God showing up and revealing things to uh, Ezekiel. And he has been transported in this particular vision. He's been transported in a vision not literally, but in a vision to Jerusalem. And God is showing him many things there, what's going on in the temple and in Jerusalem. So this is a continuation of the vision we saw uh, last week. Again, you don't need to know all the details from last week to understand what's happening before us today. But it is a continuation of that same uh, vision. And much of the things that he's showing to Ezekiel are terrifying. Things that no one would want to be shown. Things about the future of his people. Future of the Israelites. So this vision here in chapters 10 and 11 is a continuation again of the vision we saw 
last week, and it will conclude right at the end of chapter 11. But what we see here in chapter 10 is a description. This vision is very similar to what he saw in chapter one. But one thing that is slightly different that's worth pointing out to you is that is in his description of the vision, the four living beings, which weren't told to us exactly what they were uh, in the original vision there in chapters one and two and following. We're told here that these four living beings uh, that were below the throne of God. So there's these four beings under the throne, holding up the throne of God. They're here described as cherubim. They're cherubim. Cherubim are angelic beings. And we're given this added detail here. And maybe there's something to this. Ezekiel, being the son of a priestly family, was most likely aware that in the temple's most holy place, what would would have been in the temple's most holy place? There would have been uh, engravings, carvings, and even some statues of cherubim right there in the holy place, in the most holy place. Ezekiel would have been aware of this. He would have also likewise been aware that in the Scriptures, God is often said to be enthroned above flying cherubim. If you were to, we could highlight a few Scriptures, just one for you this morning. 1 Samuel 4, verse 4, says this, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. You hear that? And the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, Felicia, if you'll pull up that image of the Ark of the Covenant. On the top there are cherubim. And that their wings, they're leaning over, kind of covering their faces. And it was believed, as, as it says in the Old Testament, that it was in that spot from there that the Lord spoke to His people and, and dwelled in His focal point of His presence was, was there. And there are many other passages, too, that make this connection between cherubim and the throne of God. There's a lot we could say about that. Um, but, but Ezekiel perhaps would have been aware of these things in this moment. Now, why am I sharing that with you? You're like, I don't know. Tell us. <laughs> well, notice how right here in this vision that Ezekiel is seeing in chapter 10, we see the same vision of the throne that he has in chapter 1, but now he tells us clearly that the four living creatures that are supporting each corner of the throne are cherubim. What Ezekiel's seeing here in visionary form is the very thing that the temple was made to represent. Do you see that? In the most holy place, there were cherubim. And it is said throughout the Old Testament that the Lord was enthroned upon the cherubim. Ezekiel's now seeing it, not in the copies in the temple. He's seeing it for real, that this vision of cherubim and the throne of God He's being given a vision of the throne of God. And some of the elements in the vision, like the cherubim, are a clear reminder to us that the temple was a gift designed to point to God. It was saying something about God and who He was. But it was not God. 
It was not God. It was designed to point them to God and teach them something of who God is. And in truth, this is what God wants of all His good gifts that He gives to His people. Now certainly we could say that the temple in Jerusalem was a unique gift, okay? Unlike many other gifts. But this holds true, I think, for all the good gifts we receive from God. They are somehow pointing us to Him, the Giver. I remember praying before our soccer camp with our volunteers and with some of the kids this uh, past summer. God, thank You for soccer. But help us to see and remember that really it is You that we are enjoying. Soccer is just a kind of mask that You wear to give us enjoyment. And our hearts as volunteers and servants out there on the soccer field was to be a picture of God to these kids. We were wearing masks or God was wearing a mask and we were the ones out there. Right? God God was really the one ministering to those kids and those families through us. And in a way, this is true of every good gift that God gives us. It's just a mask that He is loving us behind. Food, laughter, relationships, marriage, hiking, science, sports, rain, sunshine, work, even blasted snow. All of these things are good gifts given to somehow point us to our Maker. Martin Luther wrote that all of these things are, quote, the masks that God wears behind which He wants to remain concealed and do all things. It's not not an amazing thought. The temple was a mask. Showing them something of God. Calling them to worship God. And they missed it. And they missed it. But I wonder if maybe we are missing our Maker in some of these things too. And I want to challenge you. It's part of my role and and call as as pastor here is to challenge you in these things. And are we missing our Maker in His good gifts? If we miss our Maker in our work, in our relationships, at mealtime, in science, and and in marriage, it will, let me tell you, always go wrong. And not only will it go wrong, but it will hurt us and hurt others and will lead to pain and misery. And this is what happened here to Israel in this story that we're unpacking in Ezekiel. Even though the temple was a monument that was showing God to the people, they still missed Him. And it led them into all kinds of brokenness and superstition and, and pain. And because God is a loving Father, He refused to let them continue in this destructive way. Which leads to our second point. God's good gifts can be taken away. God's good gifts can be taken away. Now before we talk about this, let me preface. We've all lost some precious good gifts in our lifetime. Don't hear me saying that this is why you lost your gift. That would be a wrong conclusion. Okay, Don't read between my words. Sometimes 
God disciplines and removes something from us. But that doesn't mean every time you lose something, it's because God is disciplining you. Okay, don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. It's a little preface there, okay? Before we get into this second point. I'm just saying, it is God's prerogative to do that. I give my kids a toy, I can take it away. Right? That's my prerogative as their father. And so it is with God. So that little brief preface before we jump into this point. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of God, excuse me, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. It's interesting there, just a side note, that this is um, that that Ezekiel uses the phrase the glory of the God of Israel instead of using um, the 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 covenant name of God Yahweh. There, um, God is departing, and He uses a different name here, which is revealing the distance that is now between Him and His people in this moment. Um, just a little side tidbit there. He's the God of Israel here, not Yahweh, the Lord. Um, But in verse 18, Ezekiel sees the glory of the God of Israel moving out from the temple threshold and going to the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh. And from here, his presence would move over to the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem at the end of chapter 11. So he's going to kind of take a couple of jumps and distance himself from the temple and the people there in Jerusalem. God was abandoning the city and leaving it to be destroyed. The good gift of the temple that the people had enjoyed for over 400 years was being taken away. Of course, we know there's a precious promise here in this passage. We're not going to touch on it too much, but there is a precious promise that God is going to bring his remnant back and they will rebuild Um, And there will be a glorious day eventually after the exile is over. So there is a precious promise here. But for now, they're under the hand of God's judgment. And the temple is being removed. And God is taking it away from them because it was, in this case, a hindrance. It was no longer leading the people to God, but was now, in fact, doing the opposite. Their hearts had taken the good gift and distorted it into something destructive now look with me now at chapter 11 and let's see precisely how this is happening this is very interesting here verses 1 through 4 the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the lord which faces east and behold the entrance of the gate there were 25 men and i saw among them those fellows there that are named there i'm not going to try and repeat those names and he said to me i've done it several times and probably botched it i'm not going to do it again And he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron. We are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So here Ezekiel is taken to the east gate where the glory of God is now resting. So what's happening here is God is revealing to Ezekiel that his presence is going to leave the temple and it's going to do so in this particular way. And. You know, God knows the reasons behind 
all of that. But Ezekiel's taken to the east gate where the glory of God is now resting and he sees 25 men at the entrance. Now, last week we talked about 25 men who were most likely priests. That was the the thought anyway. Most people that I've, I've read who are trying to interpret this passage believe that those were most likely priests. These 25 are different folk. Um, again, most interpreters believe that these are likely um, some kind of princes or royal figures. They're leaders, political figures. Uh, not necessarily um, priests. And the passage says that they were evildoers and that they gave wicked counsel and so on. And one of the things that they were saying was not to build houses. Well, what is that all about? Not to build houses. What is that all about? Well, if you were to flip to Jeremiah 29, do that if you want, or you can just listen. I'm going to read a few verses right out of that. You're going to read there that the prophet is saying The exact opposite. Jeremiah 29. Again, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They were historically overlapping. And much of what you're reading about in Jeremiah is happening or about to happen or has happened in the book of Ezekiel. So there's a lot of overlap between these two uh, prophecies uh, historically. And what you read in Jeremiah 29 verses uh, 4 through 6 say this. So Jeremiah here is writing a letter to the people in exile. Okay, so keep that in mind. And that letter is being read here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who does that include? Ezekiel, right? So that's this group, right, of people that are in Babylon that have been taken by the Babylonians out from Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it's going to be a while. Might as well hang out. Build a house. Get married. Settle down. Go to school, right? Because you're not going anywhere for a while. But back in Jerusalem, the evil leaders were saying, don't build. The exile is almost over. Babylon's going to be crushed. Don't build. Hang out just a little bit longer. The false prophets in Jerusalem believed that just like a big cauldron protects, protects what's inside. Think of a cauldron like I always imagine the, you know, these, these movies with the witch around her. <laughs> She's stirring the big stew, right, with a big cauldron. That's kind of the image, right? The false prophets believed Jerusalem to be like this big cauldron. Everything that was inside was safe. And the walls of the cauldron would keep all the bad stuff out. Nothing could get in and harm uh, the inside. Nothing on the outside. Jerusalem would insulate its inhabitants and protect them from being conquered. We've got the temple. We've got these mighty thick walls. Nothing's going to harm us. That was the mentality. Who should have they been trusting in? Should have been trusting in the Lord. Their trust was not in God. It was in their walls. It was in the temple. Once again, trusting in things other than God. So the Lord turns it on them. And in the following verses, He says, basically, I'm going to pour the cauldron out. And you're going to be judged outside of Jerusalem at the border of Israel. You're going to fall by the sword. Because you put your faith in these other 
things. They're going to be forced out of the city. And I'm going to show you that that city is of no protection to you without me there. In other words, they will not be able to seek refuge in the good gift that God gave them, a fortified city and God's very presence dwelling in their midst. God says no longer. God would now take the good gift away because it was no longer a help, but a hindrance to them. They weren't seeing God through it. They weren't worshiping him because of this gift. Their faith was not in God's preservation, but in the mighty walls of Jerusalem. Their faith was not in God's presence, but in the presence of the temple. And to correct these great errors, God would need to remove the idols, the things that had come to replace him. Now, when I look across our land and our churches as well, that's again, church is, so I'm not just preaching at us here this morning. This is so what I observe across many, many churches. Sometimes I wonder if we need our freedoms to be taken away for the exact same reason. I don't hope that. I don't long for that. I don't want that. But our freedoms no longer serve the good purposes for which they were given to us. Namely, that we might do what is right and serve and worship God. These were why these things were given to us. Now our freedom is used to do evil. Freedom has become an excuse to do what we want. To be what I want. To do what I want. Even if what I want is destructive and harmful and does not help my neighbor or promote flourishing, I'm free to do it because I want to do it. And now we even use our freedom to mutilate ourselves and do all kinds of horrific things because of inconvenience. Maybe... Some of us out there listening to this are thinking, well, I don't do those things. And that's right. Not all of us do those things. Many, maybe perhaps some of us do, but some of us engage in a more sanitized version of this. You use your freedom to do anything and everything but pursue God. Your freedom to build things, to travel, to shop, to see friends, to spend time with family, to get some extra rest, to work a few more hours, to pursue a hobby, to read a good book but not to seek the Lord. Or even to give thanks for His good gifts. And you see all of those freedoms, those opportunities as ends in themselves. Well, God understands. My family's in town. God understands. I won't go to church for three, four, five, six weeks. He he understands. You may not be doing what outwardly looks evil, but your heart is Far from God. Just as far as the next guy. This not only characterizes our nation, but it characterizes the American church. I talk to a lot of pastors. This is everywhere. We're a once a month, once every five, six weeks kind of people pop into church and see folks and say a prayer. Everyone is free. But virtually no one uses that freedom to seek God. Not even the church. Shame on us. There are people in this room who know the value of freedom. Who have to hide when they worship. Shame on us. I'm no prophet like Ezekiel. 
But I do know that it is God's prerogative to take his good gifts away when they no longer serve their purpose. Just like he did here. That is what we see before us in our passage today. But now we're going to see that even when God does take, he does it so that he can give us something even better. So while it hurts to say those things and it hurts to hear those things, right? you're like me you're convicted and wounded inside even as you hear those words no all of you if you are convicted by that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ that he does these things for a good purpose okay he disciplines and chastises takes things away for a good purpose and that good purpose is so that he can give us something better So maybe God will move and act and take some things away from us, which we probably deserve. We probably deserve that, if we're honest. But his heart is to give us something better. And that is our final point. God's best gift is himself. His best gift is himself. And what we're going to see in his final in this final point is that God will often take something away, something unnecessary in order to give us something entirely necessary. God will often remove something temporary in order to give us something eternal. God will often exchange a fleeting gift to give us a lasting gift. And we're going to see that here in this vision given to Ezekiel. I'm going to read this section here, okay? This is where he's going to touch on um, this promise here in chapter 11. So verses 14 to 21 as we wrap up the word this morning. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them. For a while in the countries where they have gone, God is saying, yes, they're in Babylon, but I am still their refuge. They're not taking hope in the walls of Jerusalem or in the temple. I am their refuge, even though they're in Babylon is what he's saying. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. So he's saying, I'm going to bring you back home and you're going to be in the land again and I'm going to bring you together with your families and I'm going to bless you. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things, all its abominations, all those things that were maybe gifts and, and and perhaps maybe some good stuff that he's going to say, we're going to get rid of all that stuff. We're going to focus on me and I will give them one heart and a new spirit and I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh and they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Then he goes on to say, but not for those whose hearts are far from God. Well, God here is now speaking to 
the remnant, as it, as it were, to that group that, we, as we've talked about in previous weeks, that were tucked in the robe of Ezekiel, to the group that had their foreheads marked with the cross. Some of y'all will remember us talking about that. To the group that was truly repentant, sighing and groaning at all the sins that were in Jerusalem and, and of their people. He says to that group, though I'm going to destroy the temple and you're going into exile and though you're far from home, it's not for nothing. I'm going to give you something better. He says that he is going to give them a new heart. And he's going to enable them to walk in his ways and to be truly obedient. And then he says those amazing words in verse 20. They shall be my people and I will be their God. That right there is the better gift. When a good gift is lost or taken, it's not the end. Whatever the reasons in God's mind or in his heart, or whatever was going on in that situation, it's not the end. Because God's good gifts are only pointers showing us the greater gift, namely God himself. The joy in the gift truly is intended to be a joy in God. You and I too often cling to the good gifts instead of clinging to the good giver. We cling to our careers, to our family, to our money, our reputation, our appearance. Again, things that have some value. Things that are not all evil or wrong. But instead of seeing those good gifts as masks behind which stands a loving God showing us His goodness and His grace, we worship and serve those things. We worship and serve the gift just like the people in Ezekiel's day. And we deserve the same judgment they received. These are idols, folks. And we have them in America under every green tree and in the church under every green tree. Idols are everywhere. And we're idol worshipers just as they were. Yet God will show us mercy just as He did to the remnant. That's been woven through in each of these sections we've looked at. Don't forget that. To those who are truly repentant and sorry and come to God in repentance and faith. So if you've been pricked in your heart this morning or perhaps in a previous week, I want to invite you. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment called Come to the Altar. And I want to invite you, if you feel so moved, I know this is not a New England or Vermont thing to do. I want to maybe stretch our spiritual muscles a little bit here and challenge you to come down to the altar this morning and lay it down. Come here to these steps and just kneel and talk to the Lord, just you and God. Or you can go to these steps or even on the pew, you know, on the floor of your pew right there, wherever you feel comfortable. Or come down here the cross right there, that cross is a symbol of that grace that you will receive coming to the Lord. Coming to Him in confession and repentance, acknowledging these things we've talked about or whatever is stirring in your heart. 
that cross is a symbol of the grace and mercy that's offered to each and every single one of us in Jesus. Everyone. It tells you and it tells me that even though we've all worshipped idols, we all deserve judgment. That's true of all of us. We've all forsaken the true God. We've sought life in all kinds of things that cannot give life. We can be forgiven because God himself took on flesh and came down in the person of Jesus. And he took the penalty. He died on a cross for the thing that you and I deserve. He received what we deserve. All so that that verse we just read a moment ago, that he would be our God and we would be his people so that that would be true for you and me. Not just for those people in Ezekiel's day or for the Israelites, but for you and me. He lost something, his own life, so that you and I might never lose the most important and needful thing, himself. But if we are to live, we too must lose something. We must let go of those things, whatever those idols are in our lives that we're hanging on to and cling to Jesus in faith and repentance. So I want to invite you this morning as Jim and Carol come forwards to lead us in a beautiful song. I want to invite you this morning to consider coming down and laying those things right here before the Lord, just you and God. You know, this is between you and the Lord and lay your burden down and ask Him for His forgiveness. I'm just going to pray as we transition into a song now. And again, uh, you're free to move about, to sing, to come down, however you feel moved. And we'll take just a few moments to do this together. But let's pray. Oh Lord, we've heard Your Word. And God, if I'm honest, it's a tough word. It's hard, Lord, to, to acknowledge, to recognize that we've fallen short. It's hard to, to lump myself in with idol worshipers. I don't like to think that. But Lord, it's true. All of us here have exchanged the glory of the immortal God, of the Creator, for other things. And we've sought life in those other things. Lord, forgive us. So as we transition into song now, God, I pray you'd stir in people's hearts if they feel so moved to come down and to be here at the altar with you to ask your forgiveness and to know that they will receive, as is your promise, your forgiveness and your acceptance through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.